Hey everyone, this is Kendall from the Recording Lounge Podcast, and on today's episode, I've got 10 good studio maintenance habits to get into. Now, these habits are mostly good practices that you can do to make sure that your gear is working its best, to make sure everything is operational, to make sure that your instruments are playing and feeling their best, and to make sure that uh, things have not changed over the course of the year and uh, that your studio is happy and healthy. Now, unless you have electrical engineering experience, most of these things, uh, you know, will be on the outside of your gear. You won't have to do much inside of the gear. There are a couple that you might, but uh, for the most part, this stuff should be pretty straightforward. Anybody can do it. You don't have to be any sort of electrical engineer or technician to be able to do any of these things. In fact, some of them don't even have anything to do with your actual gear, but uh, we'll get there. All right, let's get started. So before we get into the list, I wanted to mention uh, some of these things, it's a good idea to kind of do regularly, meaning once a month or something like that. Others, you know, you could probably get by doing these things once a year. I'll try to specify that in each of these things on the list, but um, it's, you know, not something you want to obsess over and do like daily, right? It's it's too much time to spend doing it daily, and it's not really going to give you much benefit. But I just wanted to clarify that before we get started. So let's go on to the list. Okay, so number one is test all cables and connections. So, yes, I mean all cables and all connections. Um, Now, this one might immediately seem really daunting to you, but one of the best ways you can do this is to buy a $100 cable tester. Uh, The one that I love, it's simple, it's effective. I have two of them. I keep one in my gig bag for gigs, and I keep one at the studio. It's made by EBTECH. That's E-B-T-E-C-H. It's about 100 bucks. It's blue and yellow, and it's really simple and great for testing cables. Okay, This is actually a, a device that you'll see on a couple of these uh, things that we have today, but um, this is just a really simple cable tester. You plug in one end, and the other end you can do XLR, TRS, RCA, uh, one, you know, an eighth of an inch, the small TRS connections. You can do TT connections if you're using TT patch bays or anything like that. Um, It's a really, really great device. Now, keep in mind that these devices are meant to test for zero resistance, meaning if you try to run all of these connections through a patch bay, it will probably not give you an accurate reading. It's intended to go from one end of a cable to the other end of a cable, and that's it, okay? So all you have to do is go through your collection of mic cables, TRS cables, instrument cables, blah, 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 all of the above, and just test them on the tester. It takes five seconds each, right? You can probably run your entire studio's collection of mic cables, guitar cables, pedal, patch cables, all of that in maybe an hour. You know, it doesn't take that long. This is one of those things that you probably only need to do once a year. I wouldn't recommend just doing this every day. Cables don't just randomly go bad. Usually, uh, some sort of stress has been put on them or a solder connection has come loose. I also recommend if you do have a cable failure at some point in the year, take that cable out of operation and put it into a box. I usually have a box of cables labeled to fix and, uh, you know, once a year or so I'll go through and make sure everything in that box is fixed. And there might be one cable, maybe two, you know, it's not just piles of cables that are breaking every year, right? But in the session, sometimes you'll notice something is noisy, you swap out a cable and the noise goes away that's a good chance that cable is bad or has a weak connection or an intermittent connection. So 
take it out of service and put it into a box and go fix it later. So test all of your cables, I would say, at least once a year. Now, you don't have to necessarily go through and unplug everything that's plugged into the back of your rack to test. There are other ways we can test for continuity there. Um, sometimes you will run into issues with uh, connections on your patch bay or into your gear that you will have to diagnose. But uh, a couple of these other tips will help prevent those issues as well. So let's move on to number two. So number two is to clean all connections, jacks, plugs on all of your gear. Now this one is the one that will take you a while and you probably only need to do once a year unless you experience a problem and sometimes you will have to do that uh, you know, on a session in the moment or you know, at the end of the day or something like that. Now what does this look like? Usually for me, this looks like buying some deoxit, which is a contact cleaner spray, and using something like a microfiber rag or something, you spray the spray into the rag and then you clean off the connector. Now, sometimes this can be a little bit tricky on things like XLR cables uh, or XLR jacks. Sometimes you just have to spray a little bit in there and then take a, you know, like if you're working on an XLR jack on the front of a piece of gear or the back of a piece of gear, spray a tiny bit in there and plug in the jack, unplug it, plug in the jack, unplug it. Do that three or four times to make sure that you're working in some of that contact cleaner uh, so that it's making a solid connection. Now, most of the time, gear that is installed, meaning it's in the rack and it's plugged into kind of all the time, there's not a whole lot of reason why those would just randomly get dirty, but it does happen. You know, if there's a tiny bit of moisture in there over time, it will oxidize, it will get worse and worse. And also a lot of gear produces heat. And so there's a tiny bit of heat on those connections and over time that will increase oxidation. So you still need to test this on the gear that's always plugged in. I would recommend just unplugging the connections in the back and spraying a little bit into the connector or into the plug. Uh, and I mean a little bit, the smallest you can get away with. And always keep a rag handy because sometimes this stuff can get messy. You don't want it to overspray and just get all over your gear, uh, especially if you've got vintage gear or any valuable gear. You know, really try to keep that stuff maintained and, uh, and sprayed. But, you know, again, don't go crazy with this. You don't have to constantly clean it, okay? I would say, you know, once a year or something like that, it's a good idea. I am doing this on my patch bay a, a little bit more regularly uh, where I'm basically spray into the rag, wipe down a, a TRS connector, and I go through every jack on the front of the patch bay, plug it in, plug it out, plug it in, you know what I mean? Do that three or four times, move on to the next jack. You know, it only takes about 15 minutes to do, but I will do that usually once a month or every other month or something like that just to make sure I'm getting good connections. Again, you're not trying to spray just like douse everything in contact cleaner just need a little bit just to get there i mean it is kind of like an oily kind of substance uh so it it will stay on the connector as you you know put it into the the jack and pull it back out there are situations where you may have to open up a patch bay especially if you have a switching patch bay and you may have to clean some connections inside a lot of pieces of gear will use switching jacks and sometimes over time those will get bent and they don't make good contact. So sometimes you will have to do that, just a heads up. 
Now, for anybody out there that has uh, tube amps and things like that, I would also recommend spraying contact cleaner on your tubes, wiping down the pins and inserting them and removing them from the sockets a few times. In some situations, you may have to just spray a tiny little bit into the tube socket to clean them out. This is just good practice cleaning your tube sockets to prevent noise to ensure good contact. Um, it can be pretty overwhelming, so I would recommend keeping a list of all the connections that you have. And there's a lot because every piece of gear is going to have input and output. Uh, every patch bay is going to have input and output. Every single guitar amp is going to have tubes. It's going to have input jacks. It's going to have output, you know, speaker jacks. There's thousands and thousands of places where you could have these things needing to be cleaned. Like I said, you don't have to be constantly doing this, but it's a good idea to do it once a year. Um, if you're someone like me and you have time off at the end of the year, I usually try to reserve that for that. And, you know, cleaning all jacks and plugs can take all day. It really can because I have a lot of gear. Now, I should clarify, you don't really have to do this with power connections. Pretty much if your unit is getting power, then it's getting power. Very rarely do IEC cables have bad connections, but I have seen it happen. So I would just mostly focus on audio lines, making sure that uh, you're getting good contact on all the pins, whether it's a TRS cable, a TS cable, XLR cable, especially if you have tube microphones that have seven pin cables or nine pin cables or five pin cables uh, where you, you have these little bitty tiny pins. Make sure to clean the inputs and outputs of your tube mic power supplies and of your tube mic cables. Again, don't go crazy with the contact cleaner. You just need a little bit. Number three is to spin all knobs and switch all switches. Okay, so this one is something that if you're familiar with tube amp maintenance, then you'll be familiar with. A lot of times over time, uh, pots or potentiometers inside of gear will get scratchy or noisy or crackly. And it's a good idea to spin all those knobs, meaning you go from, you know, all the way left, all the way right, all the way left, all the way right, to clear out any gunk or dust that is inside of that pot. So as you can imagine, if you have a lot of gear, that's a lot of knobs to spin. But it's good to do that once a year or so to clean it out. A lot of times you'll notice this stuff in a session where you're adjusting an EQ and it's kind of noisy. And so maybe make a note of that. I usually will put a little sticky note on that piece of gear. You know, it says spin knobs or whatever, uh, just so I can make sure to go back and do that and test for noise. Now, this is one of those instances where... If you have a really scratchy pot, sometimes it won't be fixed by just spinning the knob, you know, far left, far right, far left, far right. Uh, sometimes you will have to open up the piece of gear and spray a little bit of contact cleaner inside of the pot and then spin the knob. Um, that is pretty rare. It does happen, though. I mean, most audio gear is sealed. You know, it's in a chassis. Not a whole lot of dust will get inside it unless you just have a really dusty studio. You know, if your stuff is in an attic or in a basement or something like that, that, that potentially is dusty, your gear can accumulate dust inside. As crazy as that sounds, we all know that it happens. So uh, sometimes you will need to do that. Now, I wouldn't recommend doing this if you don't know what you're doing, but the simple uh, description of how to do this is basically 
you take the piece of gear, you unplug everything from it, especially power, make sure to unplug the power, you open it up, and you take off the top lid to do that. Usually there's, you know, six or six or eight or ten screws or something like that. Make sure not to lose the screws. You take your uh, contact cleaner spray and you find where there are pots and you spray a little bit just in the opening. There are usually three pins that you can connect to and there's a little opening into the pot and you spray just the tiniest amount into that and then spin the knob. You should notice that um, it will feel a little bit less uh, resistant to your movement and the pot will get a little bit smoother and easier to turn. This is also something you sometimes have to do on guitars. You might have to open up the, you know, control plate on a guitar and spray into a, uh, spray into the pots to prevent the guitars from getting scratchy pots. And in certain situations, you just need to replace the pot entirely because sometimes pots are just kind of permanently damaged and they need to be replaced. Now, if you've got tube amps, I wouldn't recommend doing this unless you know what you're doing because tube amps internally can store uh, potentially lethal voltages. Uh, so if you don't know what you're doing around a tube amp, do not open it up, okay? Send it to a tech uh, or learn about how to handle tube amps properly so you don't touch anything you shouldn't be touching. Um, now, if you're very careful, you can open up a tube amp and spray the pots and not touch anything else. But again, be careful. And if you're concerned at all about it, then just take it to a tech. So basically go through all of your gear, spin the pots, spray contact cleaner inside if you need to. Spraying it outside will not do anything. Just want to clear that up. Uh, and then also go through and switch every switch. So if your gear has toggle switches, which a lot of gear does, um, give the switches a couple of clicks, you know, up, down, up, down, up, down, right? Just to clear out any gunk that may exist inside of that switch. Now, a lot of nice pieces of gear will use these sealed switches that really dust cannot enter at all because they're sealed and encased in kind of a plastic or a uh, sort of compound uh, that's like poured in a mold. Uh, there's lots of different kinds of switches. Some of them are, you know, metal, but a lot of them are enclosed. Others are a little bit more open. One of the biggest culprits for that are those slider switches that you'll find on certain pieces of gear. They have like a square knob and you can slide them up or slide them down. You'll see them on like a Jazzmaster guitar. You know, there's like three of them. Uh, those types of switches are are a little bit more prone to that because they're like an open, open frame kind of switch versus like a little mini toggle switch from Carling or something like that. A lot of those are sealed and pretty hard to get dirt and dust and grime into. But it's still a good idea to give all switches a couple of flips and uh, make sure that they're making good contact. Again, over time, just sitting there in the same position, some corrosion can develop. So if you give them all a little bit of a, you know, up, down, up, down, up, down, you'll clear away some of that corrosion. And again, if you do this regularly, if you do this once a year, uh, you'll prevent that stuff from getting worse over time. So number four is to check every line for strong signal, low noise, and correct phase. Now, there's a couple of different ways to do this, but one of the easiest ways, in my opinion, is to just open up a session, uh, get a test tone file. There are a handful of different ones you can download online. I usually will go, you know, 100 hertz, 1K, and 10K, and I will put that in a line so it'll go like... Or, you know, whatever. Like, it'll make the three tones, right? Uh, give them a couple seconds each. And I can zoom in and check the phase, right? So I'll go out of my DAW, let's say channel one, and I'll go out to a 
some long cables and go through my snake, channel one, channel two, channel three, channel four, all the way down the line and make sure every single line has correct phase, good amplitude. You know, if the preamps are set to a similar gain, you should be able to record that level in and get basically you know, the same level across all your preamps. So if all your preamps are set to, you know, 35 dB of gain or whatever, something sort of in the middle, then you should be able to see that across every preamp. And uh, this this method is one of the ways that I've discovered problems with stuff in, in the past where I've discovered a cable is miswired and something has flipped phase where, you know, you look at the preamp or whatever it may be and the phase reverse button is not flipped, but I'm getting an upside down waveform, right? That's one of the ways that you can tell something has a flipped cable somewhere. The trickier part is figuring out where that phase has been reversed. Maybe it's a cable, maybe it's on the snake, maybe it's at the patch bay, and in very rare occasions, maybe it's inside the piece of gear itself, which again, is not a huge problem. Um, you can do it with just a cable that flips the, the polarity back, but you know, ideally you try to correct it at the source. So with this method, you can basically set up a bunch of channels in your DAW, let's say every input line, and you can basically just patch through one at a time and leave your DAW recording and then just go back later and check every single one, right? So you run out of, let's say, output number one, you go out to your snake, you will have to drop the level quite a bit because you're then going to be going through, you know, a mic level input, right, into a mic pre. So I would recommend dropping down your signal level to about negative 40 or something like that. And then you're going to run into your snake, into your mic preamp, and then patch that in and record that in and then go to your second mic pre. Sometimes this is really helpful with, an, with a friend to help you out, right? Okay, go to channel two. You know, you're yelling at them from the other room or whatever, and then they'll plug into channel two. You plug into channel two and it records, right? And you go through every single mic preamp that you have and check for, again, good signal strength. Um, it's, it's registering the amount of gain that you expect, uh, low noise, and making sure that uh, the polarity or phase is correct, okay? Um, now, you need to do the same exact thing on all of your outboard gear. So compressors, EQs, anything like that, same process. Run an output signal, Test tones, you know, 100 hertz, 1K and 10K, run it through the piece of gear. If it's an EQ or something like that, set all the bands flat. If it's a compressor, you're not trying to get compression, okay? Just set it very normally uh, where no compression is happening. Now for this, because you're at line level, you will probably have to run at something more normal, like negative 18 or something like that, as opposed to when you're checking mic inputs, you need to run at mic level. Right. Um, so when you're running through gear, line level gear, you need to run at a more normal sort of level, negative 18, negative 12, something like that. And then run through the gear, check it for phase, check it for signal strength, check it for, you know, an expected sort of frequency response. Um, now, when you're only running three tones, 100 hertz, 1K and 10K, chances are they should be a relatively similar level. If suddenly your 100 hertz is super, super quiet, you might have a, a capacitor failing or something like that where your low end is being dipped a lot and that piece of gear sounds really thin. Uh, similarly, if you have 10K that's really dipped in volume, then maybe you're losing another a different kind of capacitor in a different space or maybe a resistor's gone bad or maybe something else is going on and you're losing top end on that piece of gear. That's another reason to do three tones instead of just one because you can get a very, very broad view 
of what is happening in the frequency response. Now, yes, you could do a sine sweep, like a full sine sweep from 20 hertz to 20K. It's a little bit unnecessary in my opinion, and it makes it a little bit hard to check for phase. Um, you know, you'd have to zoom into the very, very beginning of the wave at 20 hertz and check that. But again, sometimes with transformers and things like that, you will actually get phase deviation down in those super low frequencies. So sometimes that's hard to exactly tell. That's why I like to do the simple sine tones, you know, boop, 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 right? Like three sine tones uh, in a row, making sure that they're perfectly, you know, correctly in phase from your DAW, and then when they go through the gear and back in, they look the same exact way. And then you can compare the volumes and phases of those and make sure that you're getting a proper thing. You know what I'm gonna do? Uh, I'm gonna upload a test tone file for checking this stuff. I'll, I'll put it on the Recording Lounge website, so I'll make a blog post that has the uh, three-tone test tone file where you can zoom in and check for phase and see you know proper frequency response. I'll put that on my website. So go to recordingloungepodcast.com and check out the blog, and you should see that test tone file. I'll also put up a consistent 1K test tone, which can be really useful for checking lines. If you've got a lot of lines to go through, you can just let that test tone run on repeat. You know, it'll be like right and you can just let it run and you can plug in and out of gear making sure that you're getting a return signal to make sure there's no broken connections or you know connections that are dirty things like that so i'll include a couple of those things in the blog post and hopefully they'll be helpful for you now when i say testing for noise i just wanted to clarify most interfaces these days have an incredibly low noise floor and if you want to go about this scientifically you can run a cable out of your interface and back in, record the noise floor with nothing going through it, just a short little patch cable, and then compare that to the noise floor on your gear. So run through, you know, a compressor or an EQ or a mic preamp or whatever it may be, and just compare. Now again, you will have to do a little bit of level matching with an incoming signal, like use that 1K test tone and make sure that you're getting a similar return signal because again, if you have your like output of your compressor cranked, of course it's gonna be noisy, but your 1K signal going through it would also be probably clipping, you know what I mean? Uh, so it's helpful to gain stage all that stuff properly, find that sort of median point where you're getting the same return signal level that you're sending. So if you're sending negative 12, you set your mic pre or compressor or whatever it is to be sending you back negative 12. Make sense? With that, you can know that you're getting an accurate representation of that noise. Now, in terms of troubleshooting, this episode isn't really about troubleshooting, but I just wanted to give this tip before I forgot. There are certain situations where this will really help you determine where the noise is coming from. For example, in certain compressors, the makeup gain on the output is a much noisier process than the input gain, right? So in some compressors, you need to leave your threshold higher and use your input gain to boost up your signal as opposed to cranking your output gain where you might get more noise. There are definitely some compressors that I have that are this way. And that can teach you a little bit about how to best run that compressor if you're uh, really concerned about having low noise. All right, number five is to check all headphones, headphone lines, headphone amps for low noise, no distortion or any weird crackles or anything like that. You know, good quality sound, um, a centered true center, meaning like if you play something that is panned center, that it does sound center in the headphones, as well as proper left-right orientation. 
right? So basically you go through, you check every line, you set it up how you would set it up for clients, right? And you play something that maybe has a left and right panning thing, uh, and then maybe has a test tone in the center. And then, you know, you play some music through it, make sure it doesn't distort or sound weird or anything like that. And, you know, keep all of your headphones at the same volume. Now, of course, different headphones are going to be louder than others. It's just nature of the beast. It depends on their drivers, the sensitivity of the drivers. It depends on their impedance, a lot of different factors. So realize that every headphone is going to be slightly different volume. That's something very important to know. Uh, so you will probably have to adjust volume up and down a little bit. But again, you're checking for a clean signal, something that's not noisy, making sure that your left and right is correct as labeled on the headphones. Uh, if you don't have the left and right labeled on your headphones, I know it seems insignificant. For me, I don't ever really care about that while tracking. I, know, I don't really know why. I mean, I guess sometimes I do, but uh, it doesn't ever really bother me, especially if I'm tracking vocals or something like that, if uh, the left and right is correct. But a lot of people are very sensitive to that. It really bothers them when that's flipped. Um, so, you know, that might just be me. Um, so just take a, get a label maker and label the left and right headphone. You know what I mean? It, doesn't take that long. That will put a lot of peace of mind uh, for people uh, for being able to know which is which. Again, this is something that you really only have to do once a year or as needed. Nothing is really going to happen to your headphones unless you have rewired something or changed something in that year. But one thing you might find is that a certain headphone amp or something like that has gotten noisy or has a distorted sound or there's a buzz in it. And that to me is something I always want to make sure is not the case because it definitely feels kind of amateur when somebody puts on a set of headphones and it's buzzing. You know what I mean? It's like you want to give them the best possible experience that you can. So make sure you check for noise or any sort of, you know, bad connections or things like that because you don't want people to have a bad experience listening to headphones in your studio. Number six is to check all your microphones for strong output and low noise and low distortion. So I know this one probably should be obvious, but you want to make sure that all of your microphones are working. Now, if you've got a lot of microphones, then there are ch chances are that you might not be using every single one of them every day, right? You might be using five of them or two of them or one of them or 10 of them, but there are definitely some microphones that can go by the wayside and maybe a year goes by and you've only used it once or twice. It's a good idea to plug in that microphone and check it, okay? Stuff can happen, capacitors can fail, uh, things can get noisy. If you've got tube mics, sometimes tubes can be really temperamental. You want to make sure and check every microphone. Plug it in, record 10 seconds of you talking or something like that. You know, put up your pop filter and just rotate the mic and, uh, you know, check it out. Tap on the microphone. Make sure that you're not getting any weird crackles or anything. Make sure the connection in the XLR jack is solid. Again, it's a good idea to spray a little bit of contact cleaner into these connections. Again, just a tiny little bit, spray in a little contact cleaner, wipe off excess and let it dry a little bit. It, it will evaporate and things like that. So, you know, plug in a cable, unplug it, plug in a cable, unplug it, let the contact cleaner dry out and then plug in the microphone and test it, okay? So uh, this is a great way to make sure that all of your microphones are working as intended, and it's a great way to spot issues. Um, I just did this in December with my microphones and discovered that I had an, uh, a condenser mic that was making this kind of clicking sound. I think maybe I've got a bad transistor in it or maybe something inside that is broken, so I had to send that microphone off to get serviced. I haven't used that microphone in about six months, 
but uh, I would much rather discover that on my own rather than discover that in a session. Not because it's the end of the world or anything. You can always just use another microphone. But again, it looks kind of amateur if you're working on a session, you've found the vocal mic that's the one, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, it's really noisy. And then you've let down your singer because the one, you know, the microphone can't really be used. That's a real bummer when that happens. So it's a good idea to check this stuff on your own. Again, that's that's kind of what a lot of these things are for, right? Like you need to check and maintain your own stuff so that you don't have failures or embarrassing moments in the session, right? You want that to go as smoothly as possible. You want everything to run as well as it can, low noise, low distortion, no problems, so that in between those sessions at night or whatever, you can do any maintenance you need to do. You can send off a piece of gear if it's broken or noisy or something. Um, you know, try to do all that stuff on your own time rather than their time. You don't want to be diagnosing this stuff while they're paying you by the hour, right? Number seven is general instrument maintenance. So these are things like replacing drum heads, replacing worn out snare strainers or the snare wires underneath, right? Replacing guitar strings, replacing broken parts like switches on guitars or if you have a tuner that's broken or if there are any parts like the nut or the bridge that are worn out and need to be replaced or if they're corroded and you need to clean them. And, of course, doing setups on all of these instruments, right? Making sure your truss rod is good, making sure that your action is not too low or too high, making sure that your acoustic guitars are not buzzing all over the place, making sure that your frets are in good shape and they don't need to be checked out, right? For me, one of the big selling points of my studio and I think why a lot of musicians love working at my place is that I have a lot of instruments available, lots of guitars and amps and drums, snare drums, cymbals, you need to make sure and keep that stuff well maintained, especially because of kind of like what I said on the last one, you'd hate for somebody to see a guitar, be really inspired, and then they pick it up and it's unplayable because, you know, it won't stay in tune or the action's really high or the strings are a million years old. You know what I mean? Like you want to keep stuff well maintained so that it's ready to go at any moment. Now, if you're not familiar with how to do this stuff yourself, you know, my personal advice would be if you're a studio owner and this is your stuff, you know, this is your, these are your guitars and your drums and you own them, you probably should learn how to maintain them because it's way cheaper to do it yourself than to just have a drum tech come in or have, you know, send all of your guitars to a guitar tech to be checked and fixed and maintained. But regardless, you can do that. I know people that don't know anything about setting up guitars and they will take a big batch of guitars to a guitar tech once or twice a year to get them set up, restrung, maintained, you know, checked out, adjusted, all of that. Uh, it's something that can cost, you know, 50 to to $100 per instrument. As somebody who has like 30 guitars, that would be a ridiculous expense that I would have to pay every single year. You know what I mean? Something like $3,000 every single year just to keep my guitars maintained. That's an expense I really don't want to pay if I don't have to. So I do all of the maintenance and setup and, you know, all of that stuff on all of my guitars, acoustic and electric and bass. Uh, and it really is something that I enjoy. So, you know, if you hate doing it, if you hate doing that sort of thing or if you're worried you're going to mess something up, sure, take it to a luthier, take it to a tech. But in general, I think it's good practice to uh, learn how to maintain your own stuff. In this category, one of the things that so many people forget to do, and I think it's important, is replace the resonant heads on your drums. A lot of times people will leave those resonant heads on for years and years and years. 
It's not a good idea, okay? I highly recommend replacing the resonant heads on your drums once a year. Those can get worn out. They are constantly being excited. They're not being directly hit, but they are constantly being excited anytime the drum gets hit. So that's something that can get worn out. It can get stretched over time and it can become really hard to tune and it will start to get warbly and almost anything you do to that drum, it will just sound warbly and not stay in tune. So if you replace your bottom heads or your resonant heads on your drums, you will have a much easier time keeping those drums in tune and uh, keeping it stable and ensuring that they resonate well. Number eight is thoroughly clean your studio. Now, this is something that you should probably be doing regularly, at least semi-regularly, but I know just as well as anyone else that, you know, the days fade into weeks, which fade into months and stuff goes by and you're like, man, I have not like really cleaned the carpets in here in a while, or I have not, you know, dusted in a while, right? So just make sure at least a handful of times a year, you go through and really try to clean out for dust, you vacuum everything, you try to get any cobwebs or anything out in the corners that you can barely see, that stuff will get out of hand. And keep in mind that with a lot of audio equipment, especially microphones, dust is not your friend. You don't want dust around your studio. Okay. Uh, another way that this can manifest itself is on the face plates of gear. One of the easiest ways to clean off the face plates of your gear without like just changing every single knob setting or go in there with a rag, the easiest ways that I know of is to use a paintbrush, okay? So I have a little cheapo, you know, $1 paintbrush, and you can go through and just dust off the face plates of all your gear. You can dust around the knobs. You know, you can use a, like a feather duster or something like that as well, but sometimes it can't quite get into all those, you know, cracks and nooks and crannies in all the gear, a paintbrush works really well for that, okay? It's one of the coolest things you can buy for $1 that will help keep your gear clean, right? So again, make sure you take the time, clean the floors, vacuum all the carpets, check for cobwebs, dust everywhere, clean off your computer screen, clean off all of your gear, the faceplates of your gear. Another thing I would recommend is opening up your computer and using an air duster to blow out the dust within your computer. That's something that I do actually pretty regularly. I usually do it every couple of months to spray out dust from computer fans. That will really help keep your computer running very smoothly because uh, that's one of the things that causes computers to slow down or wear out sooner is when they get too hot. And if you have a layer of dust over your video card or over your motherboard or on your computer fans, they don't work as well. They get too hot, right? You don't want that. So I highly recommend getting like that canned air, you know, computer dusting kind of things. You can get them at Walmart or pretty much any store around you and just spray out your gear. Make sure that you are uh, keeping it dust free. Uh, that canned air stuff works great for keyboards, even for the patch bay and other connections like that, just blowing out dust. Now, I would recommend when you do this, um, one thing that I have found really helpful is I will set up like an air purifier in the room that, you know, will collect and attract dust. So, you know, you, you spray out your gear or you spray out your computer with the air, the compressed air, and then that dust is just floating around in the air and it's just going to settle back down again. Right. So it's like, well, if you have an air purifier that attracts that dust, it has somewhere to go. That's something that I think a lot of people don't do when they do this is actually give that 
uh, dust somewhere to go. Now, you can also just take your computer outside, spray down the inside of it with the compressed air, and then bring it back inside, right? That's one way to go. The dust just lingers outside and it's not trapped in the room. But some people will spray out their stuff and the dust is just floating around in the air again and then it just settles back down on the ground, right? Not as super helpful as it could be, right? Uh, Another thing you can do to help keep dust at bay is make sure that you are humidifying your space. We've talked about this a little bit. Not only is it good for instruments to keep humidity in the air, I try to go around 40 to 50% relative humidity. You know, if the air has some moisture in it, then the dust doesn't just float around. It kind of attaches itself to those particles and they fall to the ground. It also makes people's skin not as dry. And of course, as we know, dust is a lot of dead skin cells, you know what I mean? And stuff like that. So if the air is more moist in general, it's easier for people to breathe. It's easier for singers to sing and not get, you know, this sort of like dry throat syndrome um, and your instruments are happy you generally feel a little bit better and another big plus is that you will have less static buildup that's something that people don't talk about a whole lot but it's really true like if you're in an area that has really low humidity and especially if you have like laminate floors something like that you can really build up a lot of static charge and i hate that i hate getting shocked by like touching something metal uh really drives me crazy In certain situations, you can damage certain kinds of gear with that sort of shock. Usually not, 99% of the time not, but it does happen every now and then. Depends how staticky your place is. But yeah, I highly recommend investing in a humidifier and a dehumidifier for the summer months uh, to try to keep humidity regulated in your space. And then of course, like I said, it will keep dust at bay. It will just keep everything happier and healthier. So again, in summary, make sure to give your studio a deep cleaning at least once a year. Really, should be a couple times a year. In an ideal world, should be once a month. You know what I mean? Clean everything. Wipe down surfaces, clean the carpets, uh, dust, you know, clean up around light fixtures and stuff like that. Clear away any cobwebs. You really don't want that stuff to get out of hand, okay? It can get very easily, very dirty when you have a lot of people coming in and out. You got a lot of different, you know, people bringing instruments with old cases and you got dust from those cases and you got amps and stuff that has been gigged and all over the country and all over the world. You know, we use a lot of different gear from all over and the more you can, you know, stay on top of that and maintain your space and make sure it doesn't get dirty. You know, it also just looks nice. You know, people want people don't want to go to a studio that's dirty and and grungy. Uh, It's really not a a nice experience, you know, Uh, so keep your keep your space clean. That's it. That's really all it is. Number nine. Get rid of unused equipment. Now, this is something that I strategically do. Right. I try not to buy and sell a bunch of gear. I think it's a waste of time, a waste of money. If you're a fan of the podcast, you've heard me say this before. Buy nice or you'll buy twice. Right. So you research, 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 really do your research on what you're looking for. Buy it and keep it. Okay, you waste a lot of money by buying and selling stuff unless you're actually getting money back on what you've sold. So if you get a crazy good deal on something and then you sell it for more. okay. Maybe justifiable, but if you're just buying and selling stuff, you know, especially if you're like buying it new and then selling it used, that's just wasting money. That's just bad, bad business practice. Um, So I highly recommend at the end of the year, go through all of your gear, look at what you have and say, you know, is there anything that I didn't use this year? Is there something I haven't used for two years? And ask yourself, do I really need it? Is it taking up space? 
Am I really going to miss it? Is it something that I need around? Okay, for me, it usually will end up to be things like a certain symbol that I haven't touched in two years or a guitar pedal or a DI or some sort of, you know, little handy box that I bought that I thought I would use that would solve a problem and it turns out I didn't need it. Um, maybe it's a guitar. Maybe it's an actual, you know, full-blown instrument um, that I just don't use anymore, right? I strategically try to get rid of this stuff in my low earning months. Meaning for me, when I take my time off around December, I, you know, I'm not making a whole lot of money in the month of December. And often January, even though I'm back to work, January is a pretty slow month for me. Just kind of December and January in general for the music industry have never been that great. So a lot of times I'm listing a bunch of that stuff on reverb in January or late December. And I just did that. I just listed a bunch of stuff. So if you're interested, you can go check out my reverb and uh, buy a pedal or something. Uh, (laughs) But I try to do that strategically in my low months to help offset the lack of income from the studio. Okay. I think that's a really good tip personally. I think it's really interesting to go through and notice the things that you use regularly and the things that you don't. And get rid of the waste, right? I I just don't think there's any point keeping around a piece of gear any longer than you have to if you haven't touched it in a year or two, right? Um, Now, obviously, there are situations where something has sentimental value or something has, you know, a, a very specific use. Like maybe you have a shotgun microphone and you only do dialogue or film stuff every now and then, right? Okay, you might want to keep that around. That's kind of a specific use case thing and uh, it can be really useful. You know, if it's something that is the only thing that will do that job and you might need it, all right, it's a little more justifiable. But if it's another, you know, Tube Screamer clone, Come on, you already have five of those and you know it. (laughs) You know, if it's, you know, certain types of microphones that you just have four or five of, you know, like an SM57 or an SM58, do you really need four or five of those? You know what I mean? Probably not, right? And you can get a little bit of cash back in your wallet. You can buy something else that you're really going to use every day, right? So I highly recommend trying this practice of going through and removing the removing the waste, keeping your studio efficient, only using the stuff that you really use. Get rid of the stuff that you don't. And number 10, this all has to do with more of a digital maintenance. So you want to make sure on your studio computer, you've got backups of everything, backups of all of your audio files, backups of your main hard drive. In case you ever have a failure, you've got a full image of your hard drive with all of your programs installed. You want to make sure that in your DAW, you back up what you can Not every DAW can do this, but like in Nuendo and Cubase, for example, you can save, you know, templates and save all of your key commands and save all of your preferences, save all of your window organization as specific files, as XML files that you can physically, you know, back up onto a hard drive. Some of that stuff uh, in Pro Tools or some other programs is a little bit harder to find uh, in a specific place. But generally speaking, most DAWs can do some version of this where you can back up your preferences and your IO settings and all of this. And I think it's a really good idea to make sure that you do that, right? It's a good idea to save backups of that stuff in case you ever get into a bind and you need to re-image a hard drive or you need to reinstall your program and load up all your preferences again. It's a huge pain to do, but um, it's really worth it. It can save your life in a bad situation. I've had it happen where I've had a hard drive failure and I had to reinstall stuff, but I had a backup image of a hard drive. So I basically just re-imaged the hard drive onto a new disc and I was back up and working in maybe two hours. 
<laughs> it could have been done, you know, before my session that morning. You know what I mean? Now, something that I talked about on a recording lounge quick tip on the Patreon is to go through and get rid of plugins that are wasteful, that are high CPU, that are slowing down your workflow and find better alternatives, right? I told a story of a reverb plugin that I used to have that I loved, but it would add 30 seconds of time to my renders. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. I even emailed the company about it and they confirmed it. It added 30 seconds of render time to every render that I did. And when I realized this, as much as I love that reverb plugin, I stopped using it and I went with different reverb plugins. And sometimes I miss it, but mostly I don't because what a time waste. You know, any instance of that plugin adds 30 seconds to my render time. That's crazy. Um, that it's not worth it, right? So go through and check about your regularly used plugins, you know, check them out and see, is this really, do I even need this? You know, not that you have to like sell your license or anything, but just maybe don't put it in your normal rotation. Don't put it in your template, something like that. You know, that's another good thing to go and check once a year is your templates, update your templates, make sure they are uh, doing what you need them to do and saving you time, saving you energy, saving you steps in the record making process, you know, whatever it is that you do, highly recommend going through and setting up your templates, correcting your templates, adjusting them, modifying them, making sure they're working for you. It's also a good idea to just make sure that your computer is updated, that your plugins are updated, that your virtual instruments are updated, that your DAW is updated, your, of course, your operating system on your computer is updated. You know, now I will warn you a lot of times with operating systems, uh, if you update too soon, sometimes that will cause certain plugins to not work. So definitely do your research before you upgrade your operating system. Um, make sure that you know what you're doing. Make sure you give it time. I highly recommend people wait about, you know, six months, sometimes longer before updating, you know, a huge OS update, especially on Mac, something about the way that they do those OS updates will cause like logic to stop working. And it's like, what, what do you, what do you mean it stopped working? It's an Apple product or like it'll work, but it's kind of glitchy or, you know, uh, certain plugins won't work, won't have support on a new OS. You know, we're kind of dealing with that right now as I'm making this podcast with Apple coming out with their, their new uh, M1 chip Macs uh, that use their own proprietary processors. There's a lot of compatibility issues with certain audio gear. So uh, make sure to do your research on that before updating. But it's still a good idea to keep your plugins updated, keep your virtual instruments updated, keep your DAW updated for sure. And especially like if you have iLock or if you have an e-licensor, make sure you up update that stuff. You can't ignore it. I wish you could. I wish you didn't have to even have your computer connected to the internet. I wish you didn't even have to update that stuff, but you do. There are little glitches. There are little bugs that they find. And especially if you keep your OS updated, you've got to keep your plugins updated and vice versa. Um, there, there's a relationship there. So make sure you go through and check what stuff is out of date. I have a bad habit of not updating like my native instruments stuff or Omnisphere or checking on a lot of my virtual instruments only to realize, oh, there's been two updates this year, three updates this year that I haven't even installed. Um, it also like Nuendo and Cubase will have maintenance updates that are free and I haven't installed them, things like that. Like I, I try to set a lot of these auto update things off mostly because I don't want them to be using like network resources while I'm in the middle of a session, like trying to check, you know, in the middle of the day, 
for an update. I hate that. I hate that it does that. A lot of times I turn my internet off during my sessions so that plugins and things on my computer don't try to update themselves automatically. But then at the end of the day, I'll turn on the internet and stuff will sometimes update automatically on its own. But again, a lot of times you have to download that stuff manually for plugins and install them yourself. So make sure you stay on top of that and just keep your computer well-maintained. You know, it's kind of the centerpiece of your studio. Keep it organized. Keep your folders clean and organized. Make sure stuff is backed up. Make sure all your plugins are up to date, all that stuff. Your drivers, your video card drivers, things like that. Make sure just you're, you're treating it like the workhorse machine that it is. It needs regular maintenance, you know? Again, especially if you're cleaning the dust out of it with an air duster, you're keeping the newest, latest drivers that are efficient and proven and working um, and keeping all your stuff updated, you'll be in good shape. All right. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Recording Lounge podcast. As usual, if you have a question, you can email me recordingloungepodcast at gmail.com. I'm also very interested in any of your show topic suggestions. If you're interested in supporting this podcast on Patreon, you can head over to patreon.com slash recordinglounge. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And if you become a Patreon supporter, whether it's for a dollar or five dollars or whatever you feel is appropriate, then you get access to a private RSS feed, essentially another podcast where I post all of my quick tips. And these are usually like 10 minute, five minute, something like that episodes with other quick tips that aren't really long enough to make a full Recording Lounge episode out of, but still very useful nonetheless. So I appreciate all of my Patreon supporters very much. You're helping me continue this podcast and justify it financially, right? There's a lot of costs and time associated with this. So I really greatly appreciate that. If Patreon doesn't work for you, you can also make a PayPal donation, either one time or recurring. You can go over to recordingloungepodcast.com and click the support RL tab and you can find out more about PayPal donations. So thank you very much for listening to this episode. I'll talk to you next time.